you want this? Okay then. There we are. Well, good morning, everybody. Today we're concluding, as Katie said, we're concluding a nine-part series looking at the final chapters of the book of Acts. If you'd like to follow along, then uh, maybe turn in your pew Bible to page 910. We're looking at Acts chapter 28, beginning at verse 11, page 910. Put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regrium. The next day the south wind came up, and on the following day we reached Puteoli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they travelled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, God, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Well, in verse 14, Christians whom Paul has never previously met insist on he and his friends staying with them for seven days, offering them food and shelter and covering their expenses. And that's a significant gift. And then in verse 15, Christians whom Paul has never previously met, yet hearing that Paul is on his way, they travel out. As from Rome, as far as the Forum of Apius and the Three Taverns, a distance of about 70 kilometers, to meet them. Now, in the ancient world, as in still in parts, many parts of the Middle East today, the more important a person is, the greater the distance you travel out to meet them when they come to you, and you accompany them in on the last part of their journey. That fellow Christians traveled 70 kilometers, that's several days' walk, that they traveled 70 kilometers to meet Paul is to offer him an extravagant honor. When Paul saw this, Paul gave thanks to God and was encouraged. Literally, he took courage. That is to say, he gained strength. He gained within himself the strength to carry on in the face of ordeal in the face of adversity, in the face of the possibility of pain and grief. He took courage. And, and it is encouraging to me. In other words, I get the courage to encourage when I see that Paul, this spiritual giant of a man, he needs, he needs to be encouraged. He needs to receive courage from his fellow Christians, just, just like me or, or, or you. And um, he's a giant of a guy. Well, we're not all Pauls. We're not all, we're not all Billy Grahams or Mother Teresas or Hudson Taylors. But here it is. Actually, we share in their ministries when we shout, well done, keep going from the sidelines, when we encourage them. Even giants need to have their store of courage replenished. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Well, Paul isn't in a barracks. He's not in jail. He's been allowed to live in his own accommodation. 
uh, presumably an apartment or a little house that he's renting at his own expense. Um, with a soldier to guard him means that he was chained by a relatively light chain from his right wrist to the right wrist of a soldier who'd, been, who'd be relieved, that is to say replaced, about every four hours. So every four hours, Paul had a new soldier on the other end of this chain. And as we'll see towards the conclusion of our text today, this arrangement was in place for the next two years. But Paul, writing a letter to the church in Philippi, he makes the following comment about this very situation. He says, Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. This arrangement, Paul recognizes, um, well, obviously it's going to be inconvenient in lots of different ways to Paul personally, very inconvenient, but actually how can that matter when this arrangement works so well with respect to spreading the gospel, people coming to a living faith in Jesus Christ, people being likewise encouraged to also share their faith in Jesus without fear. And in all of these different ways, the glory and honor of God increasing. Well, uh, now uh, we read about uh, two interviews between Paul and the leaders of the local Jewish synagogue, which was a big and important place because the Jewish community in Rome was of a very considerable size. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. It uh, seems odd, doesn't it? It seems odd that they haven't heard anything from Jerusalem because the relationship between Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish world, and Rome, the center of the Gentile world, that relationship was very important to the Jews. Nevertheless, for whatever reason, no communication has been received. And so actually, the Jewish leadership is a model of diplomacy. They're not going to bait or aggravate a situation they know nothing about, particularly when it involves a Roman citizen who has appealed to Caesar and therefore has his protection while waiting for a court date. So although this first interview turns out to be insignificant in terms of Paul's persecution by the Jewish religious authorities in Jerusalem, 
it leads directly to an opportunity to preach the gospel. Paul actually had written a letter to the Christian church in Rome about three years earlier in which he expressed his great desire to visit them personally. He'd never been. And we call that letter, we call it the Book of Romans. Although we don't know anything about the origins of this church in Rome, who planted it or how it first grew, we know that it was a very sizable community, a large church of believers of both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. And we see here, actually, from, we hear it from the Jewish leaders' lips that actually this church was a major talking point amongst the whole populace of Rome. They're all talking about it. And you know what? The Christians, they're all universally despised. So then. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Well, the last time uh, we uh, listened to Paul preaching the gospel, the last time it was before the Roman governor Festus. We noticed then that Paul used his own personal testimony in order to try to convince Festus of the truth of the gospel, the message that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord and Messiah, God and King. Here, we see Paul return to a strategy that he's used in the past with respect to evangelizing Jews. Here, uh, it's the same message that Jesus Christ is Lord, but now it's argued from a very different perspective. Not starting with his own personal testimony, but rather starting with the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament. Paul is making the claim, as all Christians continue to likewise do, Paul is making the claim that the Old Testament points to Jesus and is about Jesus and is fulfilled in Jesus and that Jesus is the only lens through which the Old Testament actually makes coherent sense. What those two presentations have in common, the presentation to Gentile Festus and the presentation to the Jewish leaders, what they both have in common is that both presentations are rational. They are evidence-based presentations. Two different evidence bases used, the evidence of Paul's personal testimony, his personal experience on one occasion, the evidence of Holy Scripture on another occasion. But in both presentations, Paul invites his audience to critically appraise his claims. You see, the gospel is not some conspiracy theory. The gospel is not some secret Knowledge imparted through mystery initiation rites. No, the gospel is a claim concerning fundamental reality. A claim that can be tested, scrutinized, and publicly and critically tested. It is a rational claim, and it is rational to be a Christian. This conversation, which we can see, went on all day, possibly a 12-hour session... This sermon will be slightly shorter. Um, That session would have been a very active debate. Questions and answers, or questions and counter-questions rather than a monologue. But towards the end of the day... Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. 
the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding, you will be ever seeing but never perceiving, for this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. How this conversation ends is tremendously significant and suddenly Luke gives us a lot of detail. In response, we'll also look at Paul's little speech in some detail as well. Of those who heard Paul speak, some were convinced. The way that the NIV translators go, there's kind of equal 50-50 emphasis. Verse 24 in our Pew Bibles reads, some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. However, in the Greek, the emphasis is actually given to those who believed rather than to unbelief. Um, The Greek is somewhat like this. And indeed, some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Paul's ministry, therefore, seems to be bearing fruit. But then suddenly, things seem to go sour. Is Paul mucking this up? It seems that the gathering breaks up after Paul quotes a heavy, heavy verse from Isaiah and threatens to take his bat and ball and go and play elsewhere, in fact, with the Gentiles. Is that what's going on? Well, that, I think, is the implication, somewhat unhelpfully given by the weight of how the NIV translates verse 25, which in our Pew Bibles reads, reads, they disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul made this final statement. About half of the English translations go this same route. The other half go a different way, such as the NRSV, which goes with, so they disagreed with each other, and as they were leaving, Paul made one further statement. Now, it's not a huge thing whether Paul made the comment as they were leaving or they started leaving after Paul made the comment, but... I think it does help us. We need to really think about what is going on here. And to present the Greek literally but clumsily, here's what you find in the Greek. And being unharmonious in themselves, they began dispersing, Paul making one word. So what I want you to see is that actually the timing is unclear. But what isn't unclear is why they are leaving. They're not leaving because of Paul quoting Isaiah. They're leaving because they're divided. Now, uh, last year, we had on more than one occasion the opportunity to consider the idea of biblical headship. And if uh, you were with us on one of those occasions, you may remember that we found out that heads do not make decisions. Heads represent, but decisions are made in the heart, and the heart is in the body. Heads represent, they see and hear and speak, but decisions are made in the body. Therefore, in New Testament times, for both Jews and Christians, when it was time to make a decision, an assembly or council was called. For it is impossible to make a decision without a body. 
A council or assembly or a meeting is required. To make a decision then, the body must reach a unanimous decision. A divided body is unable to do anything, to move either forward or backward. This representative body of Jewish elders began to leave, not because Paul had offended them, but because they were divided, literally unharmonious. This is a body that can't make a decision. Paul didn't kill the conversation by saying something astonishingly insensitive, by beating people over the head with threatening verses from the Bible. No, rather, observing a divided leadership, Paul explains what's happening using a quotation from the book of Isaiah. Go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. This uh, particular uh, text from the book of Isaiah is quoted five times in the New Testament, and all at key intersections, at critical moments. It's a really important text. What does it mean? Well, the background to the text is this. Hey, we're human beings, and all human beings worship someone or something, some way or another. To be a human being is to be a worshiper. The act of worship, that is ascribing worth, causes us to be conformed to the image of that which we worship. Whether we like it or not, that happens. If we worship a sporting star, we'll want to imitate her or him as much as possible. If we worship our pets, we'll come to resemble them. Etc., etc. When people worship idols, that is to say statues, they become like them. This equation is made in a number of places in the Old Testament. The Gentiles worship idols made from silver and gold, made by human hands. They're statues. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. Ears, but they cannot hear. Those who make them will become like them, and so will all who trust in them. In other words, the spiritual cost of idolatry is spiritual blindness, spiritual deafness. You cannot discern or perceive what God is up to. You cannot see him or hear him. You will not hear his message as his message if you are idolatrous because you cannot hear God. You cannot respond to God and therefore you cannot be saved. Three agencies are at work simultaneously. The agency of the prophet. The prophet will offend people by his message because he is calling them stupid. Your hearts are calloused. You could equally translate that way. Your minds are thick. You are stupid. You are spiritually stupid. That is what Isaiah is saying to his people. The people will be offended by, by, by the prophet and his message. Secondly, the agency of God. Actually, this is all the judgment of God. He's taking sovereign responsibility for this. He's totally in charge. 
um, they are under the judgment of God who has come in the form of, of a prophet and found them idolatrous. And thirdly, the agency of the people. The people's condemnation is self-condemnation. They have damned themselves because of the willful obstinacy in their hearts. So this brilliant little text, this word causes the effect that it explains. The word predicts people rejecting God. The word causes people to reject God. And the word explains why people are rejecting God. All three simultaneously. Brilliant. But this, but this word which reveals the side of God that's willing to play hardball with human hard-heartedness, this word also reveals God's saving plan, which is typically to save a remnant. Because when Isaiah gets to hear what his message is, he's shocked by it. And he says, how long? And God's answer is this. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps in the ground when they're cut down, so too the holy seed will be a stump in the land. Um, Isaiah's message is actually really good news to those who believe because they know God has not abandoned them. He is saving a faithful remnant. Um, Now, Isaiah saw it himself. God will save a remnant through the stump of Jesse, through the Messiah who will also be a light to the Gentiles. Paul's quotation of Isaiah then in this situation is inspired. I mean, literally, that's the Holy Spirit speaking through him. And figuratively, it's inspired in the sense of this is pure genius. This is pure genius because Paul sees and understands that the proclamation of the gospel divides people. Because because God is saving a remnant, only a tiny minority of humanity. Paul sees that people reject the message because it is offensive to them speaking socially, and that people reject the message because they are idolatrous, theologically speaking, this is the judgment of God. The judgment of God has caught up with them. Now, seeing that the first business of the church is to preach the gospel, we should understand this clearly too. We must understand that Gospel ministry divides. It is radically divisive. Secondly, gospel ministry actually hardens the hard-hearted. Many, perhaps even most people, will become even more convinced that the gospel is wrong when they hear the gospel explained clearly. People turning away from Jesus is one characteristic of faithful gospel ministry. Their hard-heartedness against God leads to their righteous, eternal condemnation because they are unrepentant. In other words, it is entirely right that that is their destiny since their rejection of the one true holy God is unnecessary, irrational, and evil. 
Thirdly, gospel ministry softens the soft-hearted, leading to the gracious salvation, eternal salvation of the repentant. You see, understanding that they need to be saved, they're going to run to God for mercy, and God is always pleased to be merciful. And this is gracious because it is always and only ever by God's grace that any believe. If you believe, that's, if you believe in Jesus, that's God's saving work in your heart already. And he's going to continue that saving work. And lastly, if it is true that gospel ministry is radically divisive, it is also true that gospel ministry is radically inclusive. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. In other words, it's for everybody. If it is true that God is only saving a remnant, then it is also true that this tiny remnant will be an uncountable multitude of every tribe and language and people and nation. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so we come to the end of the book of Acts. And for a modern reader, boy, is this a disappointing ending. So inadequate. I mean, for eight chapters now, we've been waiting to hear about Paul's trial in front of Caesar. His witness and testimony in front of the most powerful man on earth. And we don't get to hear it at all? Not a bit? Well, because Luke chose to conclude his book here with these words, we actually only have a very sketchy idea of how we know very, very, very little about how really the rest of Paul's life went. You know, he died in AD 64, but the rest is really pretty sketchy. However, because it is so easy to focus on what Luke didn't do with his ending, it's easy to miss what Luke actually did do with his ending. And here are four thoughts on the beauty of Luke's ending as we find it. Firstly, Paul offers us a concluding thought on the presentation of the gospel. You see, Luke's not interested in writing Paul's story. We're all caught up in Paul's story. We want to hear how it finishes. But actually, that was never Luke's intention. He's not that interested in Luke. Sorry, Luke's not in that interested in Paul. He's interested in the gospel. And way back in chapter 1, the risen Jesus said to his disciples, a group on that day only numbering 120, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And so now with the gospel being preached boldly and without hindrance in Rome, we have seen pretty much that, that this is achieved. Rome was the center of everything. Pretty much literally, literally all, ro all roads actually did lead to Rome. With the church established in Rome and the gospel being preached from Rome, all the world could now hear. Now the gospel will eventually, but surely, go to the ends of the earth. Secondly, Paul is offering us a final apologetic thought, a thought on the validity of clear, 
public gospel proclamation. You see, Paul not only preached and taught with boldness, that's great, but you see, he also taught without hindrance. No one interfered or thought to interfere. And in times of persecution, and especially in the times of Roman persecution that followed the the, the publication of Luke's book, Christians could point to this verse in front of their persecutors and say, hey, you didn't have a problem with everyone hearing the gospel from Paul back then. What's changed now? And because we are the church, we continue in that tradition of doing, supporting, upholding, clear, public, gospel proclamation, boldly and without hindrance. It's encouraging, apologetic thought. Thirdly, Luke offers us an encouragement, an encouraging thought on our involvement in all of that. Because you see, along with many texts in the Bible, this one, I believe, fails to offer us a proper ending on purpose. In fact, failure to offer a proper ending on purpose is a common biblical technique. The book of Jonah ends on a question. We never get to hear Jonah's answer. Why? Because suddenly we're being asked that question. We're being included in that book. The parable of the prodigal son ends on a question. We never get to hear the elder son's answer to his father's question. Why? Because suddenly we're being asked that same question. Suddenly we're being included in the text. The Gospel of Mark ends abruptly, even mid-sentence, with the disciples being told to go to Galilee if they want to see the risen Jesus. Why? Because suddenly the story includes us. Now, the book of Acts is all about what Jesus is doing in the world through the Holy Spirit, for and in and through his disciples to the glory and honor of God. So the book doesn't end at chapter 28. Why? Because this story includes us. It includes you and it includes me. It includes the life and story of Billy Graham. That belongs in the book of Acts. So does the life stories of Mother Teresa, Hudson Taylor, William Wilberforce, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So does your story and my story still to be written up. And when we understand that, it ought to very greatly encourage us, encourage us, really filling us afresh, filling our bellies with courage to keep on serving the Lord and following Jesus. And lastly, Luke offers us a theological thought on the genius of God, boldly and without hindrance in chains. Genius. You see, Paul achieved his desired goal of reaching Rome. He'd always wanted to do that, but in the undesired circumstance of being chained, chained as a criminal in custody. But the thing of it is this. If Paul had not been there in chains, he would never have had an opportunity to preach to those soldiers, to witness to those guards, and to explain the gospel to Caesar himself. Out of chains, Paul is an obscure, itinerant evangelist. In chains, 
Paul was a celebrity. And we too, being acts in the book of Acts, being acts in Jesus' book, we, we can have that same faith that as we trust him with our desires and our goals and our circumstances, the genius of God will work it out for us too. And we will all be able to say on that day, it all worked out okay. In fact, it's hard to imagine it could have been any other way. The world meant it to harm me, but God used it for good, for the saving of many lives in Jesus Christ our Lord. So now unto him who is able to keep, able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless in his glorious presence with exceeding joy to the only wise God our Savior, be glory, majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.